Your life can be full of inspiration and magic, and you don't need glass slippers to get there. Welcome to the podcast for real life heroines with author, speaker, and coach, Susanna Liller. Join us as we work with key elements of personal development to assist you in hearing the calls that life has for you. Be inspired, be empowered, and be encouraged. Let's start today's episode with your host, Susanna Liller. Hi, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, the podcast for real life heroines. And today I am more than excited to be talking with Colleen Garrick. And Colleen and I have had a conversation and I know you're going to be so amazed with her story. And I want to just give a shout out to David Lee, my friend from Heart at Work, Heart at Work, um, because he introduced me to Colleen. He is a storyteller and he knows that I collect heroine's journey stories. And he said, Susanna, you need to talk to Colleen. She has such an amazing story and she is a heroine. So yeah, David, you were right. <laughs> and so what is this thing called the heroine's journey? Let me just review that for those of you um, who maybe haven't been introduced to it before. And of course, it was always known as the hero's journey. Um, Joseph Campbell, teacher, writer, introduced it, brought it into um, the popular culture, particularly with Bill Moyers. They did a, a PBS series called um, The Power of Myth. And it's about a person. Of course, it's, it's always been in literature, but what I do in talking to these real life women, I show how it's reflected in our real lives, right? So, but it's a, a person who starts off in normal everyday life and they're kind of ordinary, just like everybody else. Not that anyone's ordinary, but you're just going about life. And then something happens to take you out of that normal life into, we call it in journey language on the road to adventure or into the unknown. And you go on a, a heroine's or hero's journey. And that thing that happens, we call it the call. And it can come very subtly and kind of tap you on the shoulder or it can be a whoa, big, bam, that says, holy mackerel. And it might be internal coming from inside you like, oh, I think I really want to do something different. Or it can come from outside and sort of, again, pull the rug out from under your feet. But then how does the heroine react to the call? And that's the whole thing. I mean, your how you respond to that call if you do go on that journey, then yeah, you're on the heroine's journey. But you might decide, no, no, I don't wanna really leave right now. And you might call that area your comfort zone, which is okay. Timing is everything for everybody. But Colleen and I talked about this and she's you're gonna hear about it in her story, but um, usually it gets louder and louder and louder if you ignore it. And um, then it's like the wake up call. So 
Colleen, welcome, welcome. Thank you for doing this with me today. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'd also like to say thank you to David, who's just been so remarkable in my, you know, professional development and also just really opening some doors for me personally. So thank you, David. And thank you, Susanna, for having me. You are welcome. Yeah, David is a good guy for sure. And he's helped connect me to other heroines too. So he's a heroine connector. So Colleen, we have been over what the heroine's journey is and you knew about it anyway. And what, what sets my podcast apart, because other people collect stories for sure, but I ask people to think about it within that framework of the heroine's journey. So of course, we start there. And I, I guess I just wonder if you could tell us what was life like before you got your call. And let's also say we get many calls in life, right? And we keep getting them. You think that, oh, that's it. I have evolved. I've followed that call. And now, bingo, you get another one. But that's because calls and the journey keep evolving us, right? But what was I know you're going to share a particular call. <laughs> it was a doozy. But before that, what was your ordinary life like? My ordinary life was, you know, what one would expect from, I guess, a middle class family. I was in high school. I was well educated. I went to college. I lived in the city. I got a job. Um, and growing up, I don't know if it was a void or if it was fear or if it was just not really knowing who I was internally, but there was always kind of something that kept me sheltered, I guess, you know, I think it would probably be fear and, and I felt there was a void. And so I tried to fill that void with what I thought society thought I should fill it with, whether it be work or condos or education or boyfriends or whatever it may be. And that void kind of never went away. And what I found through the fear is I could subdue the fear with drugs and alcohol. And I could still live what looked like to be a somewhat functional life. Um, you know, I had the education, I had jobs, I had a good group of friends um, and eventually you know, I had several consequences that would be calls throughout my, you know, my entire life. You know, I've had, you know, run-ins with the law, unfortunately, quite a bit. And so these are like mini calls, I would say, because they weren't very extreme, like my big wake-up call. Um, you know, I, I, I frequently got in trouble, but I got away with it. And so that, that was kind of me ignoring the call that maybe there was something internally that really needed to, I needed to look at. And eventually in 2009, I had a very big call in the- Before you go there. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just thinking as you relay, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty common that people do find different ways to fill that void that it is something in our human existence that happens and it could be being on your phone a lot or shopping or any kind of habit that wouldn't be necessarily good for us and yes it could get us into trouble um yeah okay so ordinary life and then so 
you had a big call. What happened? I, I had a big call on November 17th in 2009. Um, I was in a really dark place. I had a boyfriend who had died from a drug overdose and uh, eventually this white, this big call came in the form of 10 state police and a DEA agent knocking on my door. And this was the first time where the call was very loud and had very extreme consequences attached to it. <laughs> you described to me. So just tell us the scene, because I think you said they came in just like on TV. Yeah. Just tell us. I was at home and I heard a knock on my door and unfortunately I am familiar with what a cop knock sounds like on the door so I knew um, and I you know I was again it was a really dark place for me I probably weighed 80 pounds and I opened the door and there were 10 state police with guns held and shields and a DEA agent saying are you Colleen Garrick and I said yes I am I think you can put the guns down and they came into my apartment and handcuffed me to my refrigerator and tore my apartment apart. Wow. And they did that because they thought you were going to do something or? Um, I don't know. They just probably knew that I did have drugs on my property and maybe they didn't know what else I might have had. So they had to kind of come in with their own protection and just make sure every, they didn't know who else was in there. Um, you know, they were just doing their due diligence and, you know, not probably recognizing it was just a very small, sick girl. <laughs> right. Right. So what did you do? What happened? Um, so from there, you know, I was in a place where, you know, my dad had already once tried to help me with my recovery and I did not um, really think that a life without drugs and alcohol was one for me. I didn't know what that looked like. My entire life had been around, you know, socializing and drinking and partying. And so, you know, the fear of the unknown there, what does life look like without that? So for me, it just wasn't an option. And so my dad wasn't going to help me. Um, he said, you know, you're on your own this time. And so I was also being evicted from my apartment at the time. And so I didn't want to be homeless. <laughs> So I figured I had to make a change. And so I got myself into detox. And then from there, I went to a 12-step retreat program. And again, like I went there still really not listening to the call because there was an internal call that goes along with that very big external call. And I really wasn't listening. And it was mostly due to fear. Um, I was just thinking, okay, I'll do this. I'll, I'll make it look good. And then I'll go up, up along my merry way and continue living life the way I was, which was right. really not sustainable. But, but what was the internal call though, Colleen? What, what, looking back, I know you couldn't hear it, but what would you say it was? For me, the internal call was God. And it was God trying to say, hey, I can help you fill this void without everything else you're trying to fill it with. And I wasn't listening because I just didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. Right. And, you know, fortunately, I was able to go to this 12-step retreat and sit with people who had lived like I have lived in my active addiction and who had come out on the other side. And they were full of hope and faith and love. And they were happy and they were joyous and they were free. Like their minds were free. And 
sitting with them and listening to their stories and realizing that they had walked a mile in my shoes, I was able to be like, okay, well, if they can have this life, then maybe I can too. And I was able to, you know, work through the 12 steps and really find out who I was. I look at the 12 steps as like kind of a pathway to self, a pathway to God and a pathway to others. And in the, in the fourth step, you write an inventory. And when I wrote this inventory, I realized that I was not the person I thought I was. I thought my idea was that I was this kind, loving, honest person. And my inventory was very different. My inventory told me that I was dishonest, manipulative, and that I will harm anyone to feel ease and comfort. And I did not like that. I also recognized how full of fear I was. You know, here's this person who's, you know, got great education and, you know, has had great places to live and is well-traveled and had great jobs. But like, honestly, if anyone really knew the real me, they might not like me. And that fear drove me into some really ugly decision-making. And when I looked at that fear and I looked at the ludicrous things that I did to avoid walking through the fear, which only perpetuated the fear, I was like, whoa, like this is crazy. And then so by looking at that inventory and then there's a conduct piece as well and looking at all of that, I really was like, I do not wanna be this person. Like this is not who I thought I was and it's not someone I want to be. And one thing that I always, I, I use a lot with my daughter is, you know, when I was a little girl, so, you know, when someone asked you like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And for me, I was like, I want to own the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> and, you know, I'm clearly way off track here. But, um, you know, for me, it's like, had someone said, who do you want to be? Because for me today, what my life is defined by is who I am, not what I do. And I mean, tell us, so in this 12-step program, you were in a detox center. First, I was in a detox center. And then from the detox, I was, I was in Boston for detox. And then from there, I went to a place in New Hampshire for the 12-step retreat. So I was there for, as a client for about 30 days. And then I stayed on for about four more months after that. So I was there for about a total of six, five months, I think. And would you say it was hard? I mean, were you, you know, movies and television show us horrible places, horrible scenes of recovery? And it sounds like you were really having kind of an awakening. Um, so was it hard for you or... It was very hard. Um, yeah. I was very sick due to the physical withdrawal from the drugs. Um, so I was very, very sick. And then couple that with the mental anguish of your disease and the rabbit hole that your thinking goes into. And you think of all the harm you've done and you think of so much negative and it just continues and continues and continues. And you end up in this dark hole where you feel paralyzed. And that is really hard. And then looking at your truths of who I really was versus who I want to be, um, looking at that is also very, very hard. And 
Isn't there a, one of those steps is about forgiving yourself? Yes. There is a step. I mean, it's not necessarily about forgiving yourself, but it's, there's a promise that comes, there's promises in the ninth step. And it's like, we will not regret the past nor shut the door on it. And that is in the ninth step. So the ninth step is about making amends. And so you go to people and you make amends for how you've wronged them. And, you know, I've, I've made quite a few amends in my day. And what that brought me was really the, tr the fact that God is real because on my own power, there is no way I would go to somebody and tell them how I had harmed them, you know, the wrong things I had done. And when you do that, and then you let the person have their time to speak or ask questions, most people that I came into contact with were like, Colleen, we love you. It was really hard watching you do what you were doing to yourself and just realizing because my disease tells me that everybody's out to get me, the world is against me. And to see that people are really kind and loving and supportive and that really this negative self-talk is just so harmful. And so for me, going through that period really was refreshing. And so when others forgive you, it's a lot easier to forgive yourself. Right. You know, we when we talked about this, I shared with you that I had been through the steps as an Al-Anon participant and that I really felt that was the start. Well, I had always been to church, even as a little girl, um, and had a spiritual background, but I really got on my spiritual path, I believe, when I did those 12 steps as part of Al-Anon. So it sounds like it was equally powerful for you. So, but I know that things continued to shift for you. Um, so tell us more. You're on the road of adventure. That's how we would, you have definitely moved into the unknown. You're not that person drinking and having fun and socializing anymore. You had this huge call. So now what? So now I have to you know atone for my crimes that I committed in my active addiction so I was in Plymouth New Hampshire for about five months and then I moved to Portland Maine which is how I got here um, for sober living and I was in court for two, almost two years for my charges which were drug trafficking I lived in a school zone and conspiracy and they held 10 years in prison and due to my recovery, and so that's a huge unknown, like, ah, oh, what does life look like in incarcerated? And then like, I was 34 at the time and I'm like 10 years, I'm gonna get out and be 44. Like, am I gonna get married? Am I gonna have children? Like all of this crazy unknown. And I just kept doing the right thing. Like a lot of people, people are like, wow, you know, if that were me, I would just be like, screw it. Like, you know, I'm going to prison anyway. And for me, it just wasn't an option. And I ended up only getting sentenced to three years in prison. They reduced my, my crime due to my recovery. And um, I ended up only serving two years in prison because of some work I had done while I was in there. And plus I went back into court and she reduced one of my other charges to just serve one day in prison for it. So I ended up serving exactly two years. I was in there from March 8th, 2011 until March 8th, 2013. And That's a long time, even though it was reduced to 
be in prison. Yeah. And that was in Maine. It was in Framingham, Massachusetts. Okay. And it was probably one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. So this is crazy. Let's just say it. Yeah. <laughs> That's free. I know because you shared this with me, but two years in prison, one of the most beautiful experiences of your life. So say more about that, please. So when I first got in, I was really angry and I was like, I don't belong here. I'm doing the right thing. Like, I don't belong here. And eventually I realized that I was just resisting reality. And when I resist reality, I create my own suffering. <laughs> and finally, I just kind of like let go. And I was like, you know what? Like I'm here and I can't think my way out of it and I can't buy my way out of it. So I'm just going to do what God would want me to do. And, you know, I just start, I started teaching yoga to the inmates and I took some women through the 12 steps and I worked with the mental health facilitator to do some groups for the women and I became useful and I was free. You know, they counted me six times a day. They told me when to eat, how to eat, what to eat, but I was mentally free and I was so connected to myself and to God and to helping others that it was beautiful. And, you know, the spiritual growth I was able to have there and literally be free, you know, even though my physical freedom was, was not there, my mental freedom was a hundred percent and it was beautiful. So that's pretty mind blowing, really, you know, there you are locked up and you find real freedom. And I think what you're talking about is your soul was free. Yeah. Yeah. And that really helped the other women that you came in contact with. And so in a way you found your, what, reason for being? I mean, that's- Purpose. Yeah, you're- I'm a very purpose-driven person. So when I'm lacking purpose, um, I, I sometimes fall short, but <laughs> so, so how would you say your, what was your purpose then? What would you say it was when you were there? Um, I think it was to give hope to others. And I think today that's still my purpose. You know, I'd like to say that I, I stayed on that spiritual path through today, but I did not. Um, I started putting, you know, I was released from prison and, and life started happening and I forgot what was really important, which is like having purpose and staying connected and being useful. And, you know, life happened and I got a job and I got, a, I had a beautiful baby and I got married and my life was became a little bit difficult and overwhelming and it was just everyday things. And so I was so full of fear to let people know that I was struggling with my marriage or struggling being a mother. Um, and I didn't ask for help. And in that I ended up getting, getting sick again. And I ended up picking up after eight years of sobriety and it was really ugly. You know, people always say when you relapse in the steps that it's awful and it is, true it is a true statement it's awful because especially when you've experienced the joys and the freedoms of recovery and then you're back in that place of being feeling trapped again um it was it was really ugly and you know there 
you get into that for me it's like fear paralyzes me and it's like as much as I want to do something with it sometimes I just can't or I don't know what to do with it and then I'm just stuck and when I'm connected to my recovery and I'm connected to God and to others I have faith and trust that walking through the fear I'll be okay mm-hmm. um, but for me as a person you know with with an addiction some, if I'm not connected and if my recovery is not first and I'm not, you know, constantly taking care of my recovery, my sick thinking will come back. Those, those negative thoughts will return and tell me that I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. And, you know, everybody listening to this, I mean, we all have those thoughts and you in your with your particular physiology, they really were loud, right? And maybe, you know, it isn't the same for every, I know it's not the same for everybody, but we all have them. And in, on, the, on the heroine's journey, we call them threshold guardians, you know, or you might call them, someone might call them the critic in our head or the saboteurs in our head. And I've, I've worked with so many women and I asked them about those thoughts because everybody has them and and they very much say that they're kind of similar to other women i mean it's it's like we all have that same you're not worthy um who do you think you are um you'll never make it happen all that stuff those threshold guardians say in everybody's heads and um and i i would suspect that part of your fear too was just the shame of having to shame is so gets in our way you know Brene Brown is so good at helping us work through that but yeah boy so you had like a double whammy right I did have a double whammy and you know for me when I speak to other women you know because I'm I feel like I'm an extremist like you know I need to have 10 years of you know prison time hanging over my head to make a change but those internal feelings of shame and you know, doubt and insecurity and fear, those are the things we can all identify, whether we're in recovery or we're not in recovery. You know, some not everybody needs to be in recovery. You know, we all we all share those same feelings. And just knowing that there is something, a way through them together is just a remarkable thing. So when I share, you know, at with other women, I try to really, although I do share my extremes, because if I can go through those things and be sober and be in recovery, then what can I go through? And, you know, like, uh, and I did show you that, like, you know, as I stepped away from my recovery, I got back into my disease and, and, you know, so it's just show in that shame, like you said, the shame it's like a heavy blanket and you just can't move from it. And, and again, it was for me, it was fear, like fear. I had disappointed people that had seen me in recovery for so long. And, you know, but again, like those feelings are something we can all identify with. All of us really. And maybe lesser, you know, not the extreme always, but absolutely. And so how do you then get the tools back to work with your disease and what did you do to what were those steps you took so you know i after i had relapsed you know i i wanted to get back into my recovery and into the steps but again like fear really held me back and 
I had taken little steps to try and then I kind of just didn't try hard enough because I wasn't asking for help again due to fear. I thought I could do it by myself. Um, and ultimately, you know, I at that point I was a single mom. My, my daughter's father was not in the picture and my family live far away. My brother lives in Dallas and my dad spends most of his time in Australia. And so it was me and my daughter. And so my fear also is like, what happens to my daughter? So I go to detox again, like, and that kept me using for much longer than I had hoped <laughs> or would want, you know, but what happened was, is, you know, my mother wasn't around when I was little, she's an alcoholic, she's still active. And I was looking at my daughter's life and I was like, I'm going to repeat my life for my daughter. And I do not want that. I do not want her to have the childhood that I had with an absent mother. And so finally, my dad came home in July. Of, I had lost my job due to my addiction. Um, my dad came home in July of 2019. And I just said, dad, I need help. You know, I need, and he's like, what do you need? And I said, I need you to take my daughter and I have to go back to detox. And he said, okay, like, let me help. And, you know, and at that point, like, so I go to the detox and I come home after about 12 days, I was still very, very sick. I was not ready to have my daughter back. My family also was really mad at me because they had found out some stuff I had done during my using um, you know, I created a lot of harm and a lot of chaos to a lot of people. And, you know, so, and at that point, like my willingness to do anything and everything I had to do to stay sober was very extreme. And I was willing to do, and, you know, and I just came home like this time around, I didn't have like our 12 step retreat to go to in, in the beautiful mountains of New Hampshire. I came home to my condo and it was just me. And I'm like, okay, like, what am I going to do? And, you know, I called, I got my sponsor, who's my sponsor today um, and started going through the steps again. And then I went to an IOP program, which is an intensive outpatient program here in Portland. And I went there for as long as they would let me. And I was looking for work and they ended up letting me go. It's an eight week program. I went for 17 weeks because it was a safe place. And I was just fueling my soul with recovery and being useful and listening and learning. And cause like the thing for me is like the more I know, the less I know. And if I can just feed my soul with spiritual literature and people and experience, then that is just a beauty, beautiful thing for me. And so I was able to do that. And, you know, it was really hard again, because I was at home and, you know, I had also gotten into some trouble again from when I was active. And so, you know, and I was like losing my condo because I couldn't pay my bills, but I just had this trust that like everything was going to be okay. And, you know, that fear of the unknown is so great, but for me, like the willingness to do the right thing, to stay sober, to have, you know, my recovery be number one, to have my daughter back was just really at the center of everything. And so I just kept trudging along. One step at a time. Yeah. One step so at a time. It's just so, um, well, yeah, so everyone can hear why this is such a remarkable story. And just your courage in sharing it 
Right. I mean, it's really a gift that you would share your experience with us because other people are going to get hope from what you're telling us. Um, and, you know, just the things, the themes, um, asking for help, asking for help was hard for you. And but it ended up being a lifeline once you finally did, you know, and and I have we all I have a hard time asking for help, right? Um, it's a common human failing. And the other thing I, I noted, you know, the resisting reality um, is what causes you to suffer. And I think we both talked about Byron Katie, um, who's a well-known spiritual leader who her whole practice is based on don't resist reality and and is it really true and she has a whole process for that so it does cause suffering um and so the other thing about being free you're free of the burden of that shame and the burden of that having to fill that hole with stuff that isn't good for you and um is the hole filled the hole is filled today because it's filled with my spirituality and you know like i mentioned you know for me the 12 steps is a pathway to god and you know for me god isn't doesn't necessarily have to align with any religion for me god is like this big giant warm hug that lets me know that no matter what everything's going to be okay. And that no substance, no amount of shoes or clothing or new cars will make anything better, but God will always be there and make me make sure everything's okay. And will provide for me, you know, in the past two years, since I've been back in recovery, you know, I, like I said, I almost lost my condo. I did not, I still have it because I just kept doing the right thing. And you know, I did not get in a ton of trouble for the, you know, chaos I created. I, you know, have to pay some restitution and I'm very grateful for that. You know, my daughter has me with her. My daughter's father passed away from a drug overdose last summer, right before her birthday. And, you know, we're okay. And I was able to be there for her and support her and love her. And, you know, so much has happened. I've had a, a great boyfriend and we broke up recently and that's been tremendous heartache for me, but like everything's okay. And I just trust that there's this greater purpose and picture and, you know, like the journey is going to continue and I'm going to continue to have callings and, you know, they're going to be different though. And wow. it's exciting. Right. I think, and you've talked to me about how you love leading groups in recovery and talking about resili resilience, which is how you met David, I think. And, um, and so, you know, helping other people who are struggling, what a calling that is, you know, what a purpose that is. And so, as I think about who might be listening to this, that there might be somebody that's, wow, resonating, maybe not with the going to prison and the 10 <laughs> police officers outside your door, but saying, I think I have a problem and maybe they're thinking, maybe it's time to do something. I mean, what would you tell them? What would be a step if they're thinking, 
I need to do something about my, however they're abusing. I mean, for me, it's kind of like, you know, if I think about like a newcomer, you know, and they're like questioning, is this for me? Can I identify? My thing is like, if you're feeling hopeless or you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, then give it, give the 12 steps a shot, get connected because what do you have to lose? You know, for me, it's like, if you come in and like, to be perfectly honest, even people who aren't addicts could benefit from doing the 12 steps. Like it's a beautiful process. And I would say absolutely. It is a beautiful process. It's yes. beautiful. And it just really gives you so much, so much from it. And for me, it's like, give it a shot. What do you have to lose? Because if, if you start going through the process and you're not happy with it, drinking and drugging still going to be there. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> You know, so if like you're feeling hopeless or you're feeling like you have an empty hole in your soul and you don't know what to do with it, then give it a shot, you know, and there's plenty of 12 step programs for lots of different issues. And, you know, the idea behind them all is the same regardless. I mean, for me, it's like I'm powerless over alcohol or drugs, but like literally I could take that word alcohol and drugs out and replace it with anything. Um, you know, I could, um, I could replace it with emotions. I'm power, like today, what's important for me is my emotional sobriety. And mm -hmm. so I replace the word alcohol because for me, once the drugs and alcohol are gone, like that's it, you know, I, I don't struggle with using today, but I do struggle with keeping my emotions in check. So it's like, what does that look like? So I'm powerless over my emotions and how do I make it? So my emotions are somewhat even keeled today. And that's where like the trust in God comes and, faith that everything's going to be okay. So do you still have those, those negative thoughts in your head? Do they still come in? Yeah, of course they do. And then, so the other thing that I keep literally at the forefront is like, every day is a new day. And I'm a human being with human thinking. And, you know, I'm going to make mistakes. But it's like, am I going to learn from them? And if I'm making the same mistakes, well, that's a little problematic. But like, that's where we grow. You know, I would, I've always been so afraid of failing, but like today, I, I don't really look at failing as a negative thing. It's an opportunity for growth. And that's what my recovery has taught me that like, it used to be just so like, I'd be like, oh no, what if I do this and I don't do good at it? So I would almost like do poorly at it anyway. Cause then I had an excuse why I didn't do great. <laughs> and so it's like, you perpetuate your fear by creating your fear almost like just, you know, and so for me, it's like, you know, I'm a human being and I'm going to every day, I just try to do my best. And some days my best isn't as good as the other days. And, you know, I fall short. I fall short in parenting. Um, you know, it's really hard being a completely single parent with no family around. You're not a perfect parent, Colleen. No, no I'm not, not perfect. Wow. I'm not a perfect employee. I'm not a perfect daughter. I'm not a perfect person, but I am perfectly imperfect. <laughs> yes, definitely. And that's the, that's the truth. That's a real truth. Yeah. And so when fear comes, because you said that that's the thing that has always been hard for you. What do you, you have a tip or a way that you deal with that now i mean you'll probably tell me to stick with your program 
right? To, but how do you deal with fear? Because it keeps coming up for all of us. For me, how I deal with my fear is I look at it and then I ask myself why I have the fear. And ultimately I come to a root fear. And then I look at my self-reliance. Like how do I manage control or avoid to manage control to try to avoid walking through that fear? And then I look how my self-reliance fails me and my self-reliance usually just perpetuates the fear. And then I look at, okay, well, if I'm God-reliant, what does that look like? Right. And if I'm God-reliant, it looks like no matter what happens when I walk through that fear, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Everything, everything yeah. is good. Yeah. And if I don't walk through it, you know, I'm the one missing out. Like, you know, I'm, I'm holding myself back from God only knows what by not walking through that fear. And I think our brain gets in there and our brain thinks it knows what's going to happen. And, you know, how could we possibly know what God or the universe, whatever you want to call it, has as a possibility for us we can't know but we're so sure oh if i do that i'll never make enough money if i get that job or leave this job or we're just so sure and we don't know yeah we do not know wow. and like also like today like you know i don't carry shame and it's only because of the process of the steps and you know my self-confidence is back my self-esteem is back and you know, it's because I'm a person who lives by a set of principles today. And so I make sure that my actions align with those principles. And that makes me have that confidence in the ability to walk through fear and just be my authentic self, which I'd always been fearful of being, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago. Right. Being who you are. And so Colleen, I'm gifting us with who you are and with your story. It's just, you know, a story of such courage and bravery and hope. I guess you're right. I mean, if you give people hope, that's your purpose. How can anybody listen to this <laughs> with whatever they're thinking about they're ashamed of or the mistakes they've made and, and not forgive themselves and know that. And I guess that's, I would say, because I, I talk about spirit and God and the universe. And, and I say, you only need like a teeny bit of belief and that will help you. It really will help you. And I remember, um, oh, what's his name? Dyer, who's the um, famous author, D-Y-E-R. Oh, yeah. You know who I mean. I know who you mean. He, he, he had this great story or just he would say, it's like um, going into a room and not turning the light switch on, not reaching out to God or being on a trolley and in San Francisco and you're being all, you know, backwards and forwards. All you have to do is hand, hang on to the strap which could be like hanging on to the divine and you're better off. So it's another way of asking for help for sure. And um, yeah, so your story is so 
helpful in so many ways. I mean, dealing with all of these themes that we've been talking about. So, well, we have to bring our, our talk to a close, but I want to, um, I don't know, somebody out there listening, what do you want to make sure? What's the message you want to make sure they got from listening to you? I would say the most important thing, and this is for if you're in recovery or not in recovery, that you're not alone. We are not alone. And like all that negative self-talk or even like maybe mistakes we've made or shameful acts, or there is someone else in this world who has done what you have done, if not worse. So we are not alone. We are human beings and we're here to lift each other up and help one another. And there is hope and there is just, you know, life is going to happen no matter what. And it's like, how can I be the best version of myself today, you know, and live life on life's terms. And I know that like me, you have a belief in that we have energy that our positive way of being is reflected outward. And so I know that wherever you go, you're making people feel good even before you open your mouth. And it's just a beautiful thing. And your journey, again, you said being in jail was the most extraordinary, wonderful experience of my life. Well, I guess I'm glad for you that you had it. <laughs> and that is on the heroine's journey, we evolve. I mean, that's to me, I think that's our job as humans is to evolve to our highest potential. And we do it by answering those calls and growing and growing. And that's, boy, you just through the pain, through everything, you have just kept growing and it's remarkable. And it's not over. <laughs> no. no, it's not. But that's so, okay. And I asked you about a book and you said, well, it's been in my head. So yeah, something about something about you're not your mess or something. So I'm reading a book called Make Your Mess Your Memoir. And go. so I had written a memoir in prison, but it got lost. So I'm considering writing a new one because clearly that was not the version the universe wanted out there. So I'm going to get on it and then in my crazy mind, I'm like, HBO will make a series of it and it'll be like Sex in the City meets Orange is the New Black. Okay. <laughs> and who's going to play you, I wonder? I Maybe. don't know. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for being here with us today. And I have a feeling we're going to have to maybe in a year or less get back with you and see how things are going. Oh, I would and, love that. Oh, it would be wonderful. And um, I just encourage everybody to keep watching, keep listening to this podcast. I hope that you also have a chance to follow me on Instagram. And I have SusannaLiller.com has other information for you. And you'll know when Colleen's coming back. And I have a group, the Real Life Heroines Network, which Colleen is now a part of, where we're collecting heroines, women who have answered their call. So um, join us there. We'd love to see you. And again, Colleen, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. <laughs>
take care. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Real Life Heroines with Susanna Liller. We're so glad you've joined us and would love to connect with you outside of the show. To find more about Susanna and how she can assist you in your heroine story, go to SusannaLiller.com forward slash blog or find us on social media and YouTube by searching Susanna Liller. You can also email us directly at Susanna at SusannaLiller.com. We'd love to hear from you. To be encouraged and inspired outside of the show and blog, check out You Are Heroine, a retelling of the hero's journey written by your host and coach, Susanna, available on Amazon. Until the next time, be well, heroine.